The thing about comparing rates at Progressive.com is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about comparing rates at Progressive.com. We probably don't even need the words comparing rates anymore to remind you that seasoning steaks at Progressive.com is an easy way to save on car insurance. Or that swimming in trousers helps you find the lowest rate. And that's the thing about foraging for truffles. You've heard a lot of ads about standing tiptoe on a cinder block. Compare rates and <clears throat> sing softly to a wounded field mouse and save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. HD Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. So, uh, continuing our discussion on technology, Swapna, I'll come to you and ask you: How do you see the role of technology shaping the healthcare industry in near future? Thank you, Nitu. And first of all, I'd like to thank the whole fraternity of healthcare, pharma, life sciences. You guys are our soldiers in this very strange war. and thank you so much uh, on behalf of everyone right so let's talk about the role of technology i think technology actually plays a role in every aspect of the life sciences domain i'll give you a couple of examples of how automation anywhere is playing a, a very critical role in the front end helping our caregivers in this uh, very unprecedented scenario Uh, so we have a hospital we are working with in the united kingdom northampton general hospital whose oxygen tanks are dissipating oxygen towards the ventilation mechanisms right across the wards are bought and the whole mechanism of where uh, a patient should be sent which ward the patient should be sent is the oxygen getting balanced across the wards throughout the hospital is controlled by bots now now why is that good all this automation or use of artificial intelligence is good because it allows humans to do the important work which is take care of an individual which is invest more in finding the right medicines right so technology is an assistant to better our lives and no more can that be important than in the life sciences domain another another very quick example is the national health service in the united kingdom the forms that patients have to fill up in order to get tested or get registered for any sort of care still to a large extent is physical so they actually write in a form and fill in a lot of data the whole extraction of data from forms to any database which is critical in life sciences because once you get that data you can move the patient ahead through the whole system and through the whole process is now totally automated e28 forms this registration form is completely automatable the data extraction piece is automatable which means humans were actually reading data and entering data into a database now are helping patients and helping the process go faster this technology is not only used in the front end it's also used in the back end for processing bills really getting the patient to get the care quickly and be able to go home quickly so keep the patient as the center and we assist we are partners to all pharmaceutical companies healthcare companies and even labs so today even in india if you look at icmr they have to be taking information from almost 1300 labs if i'm not mistaken across india so we are working with labs to ensure that all the forms that they get submitted by the patients from they are the data is automatically extracted entered into a database and sent to the authorities immediately so things can get processed so reporting compliance all areas pharmacovigilance even in the pharmaceutical industry 
we have customers like uh, uh, Beckton Dickinson, we have uh, uh, Cerner, EMR Records, uh, Pharmacovigilance, accelerating the reporting, data aggregation, everything can be automated. So really large portions uh, where technology can make an impact, accelerate patient healthcare, accelerate uh, time to market for pharmaceutical companies. We're also working with pharma companies in India now who have adopted automation and are seeing a direct impact for time to market. Yeah. Improved on policy measures, policy measures pertaining to use of robots and uh, artificial intelligence in healthcare. So if I get your question, Nitu, you broke up a bit in between, but I think you spoke about uh, there, are there any policy violations in using AI or bots? Uh, no, in... no, I was just asking that uh, has government recently improved on policies, uh, policy measures regarding artificial intelligence in healthcare, in terms of healthcare? See, it's uh, typically the government organizations uh, expect compliance for all the right reasons. And technology, remember, as I said, is an assist to humans. So as long as we're able to meet the audit and compliance mandates by various authorities, and uh, Sangeeta ji was saying, uh, typically sometimes states have their own regulations. Automation and AI is able to really help you audit even better because it removes human errors from the whole conversation, right? What a human, a stressed human, especially today, People are under a huge amount of stress. All that kind of gets removed from the conversation. So there is no violation of any regulation when it comes to using automation. In fact, it assists uh, audits much, much better. And that's what all our customers have been saying as well. Okay. So maybe okay. I can... Yeah. Uh, multiple people. I'd just like to add, if I could, sorry. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's... Uh, I, there are two ways to look at technology. One is to look at it from what is permissible by the government, but the second is also to look at what is evergreening for you as a company, right? So we are looking actively at all technology right now with three lens in mind, right? The first lens is what experience is this creating for the user? Replicating a physical experience through a digital route is not digital. Right? You have to create a new user experience here. Right? So that's the first one. The second is actually efficiency. How does what we're doing create more efficiency for the user? Right? And I think that's the second thing that we're looking. And the third is resilience. Resiliency, right? So is how resilient is this technology if it was ever to be disrupted or we had a disruption event like COVID or a pandemic change? So we are looking at these three um, these three screens to screen any potential technology. The most important is the user experience. It cannot be just the replication of a physical experience facilitated through uh, iPad interface. It has to be beyond that. So those are the lens we're applying. And I think it's really, uh, you know, one is regulation, but I, I just like to go back. It's also a resolve that every individual company wants to get to, to in, in, in improving all these three factors. Okay, so we have had a broad overview of this of the sector, and now maybe it's time to get into the specifics. So, Umang, I'll come back to you again. Uh, Cipla has been an active player when it comes to COVID-19 drugs, but huge demand of these drugs has actually given way to black markets. And uh, I just want you to take us through how are you countering this challenge? 
And also, given the global supply constraints of drugs, how are you placed to fill the gap? And uh, government is, uh, is is government really supportive uh, enough for the local manufacturing? If we talk about, so I think there are multiple parts. I don't think the the issue is so much about local manufacturing here, because frankly, okay. I, I sense a new a new level of collaboration between foreign between foreign MNC based companies in India. Right, in no time did seven companies out of India prepare to give Remdesivir out to the market, right? So today Remdesivir is being supplied by six or seven Indian companies, and there's a level of collaboration with Gilead. So let's come to black marketing, because I think it's something that, that you've raised and it's something that we're hearing about very often. So the first thing that we've done is, I think from a simpler perspective, every single vial that we have sent out has been accounted. They're actually transparent with the data we're putting out. We're, just, we're putting out data on how we are distributing this across states, we're putting out data on how this is being distributed across particular distribu distributors within the country. The second is when we began to hear about shortages and we began to hear about just the uh, black market that was running, we started looking at, we've set up our, our own helpline, right? So if you're finding that there's no stock in the market or you're finding that there is probably an exorbitant rate being charged for something that you want to call a helpline, right? A helpline is there to help. Uh, it's going to direct you to where the, the product is available. It's going to direct you to what the right pricing is. And we've, we've set up this helpline. It's just amazing. The number of calls that we get every day, it's overwhelming, but it's been amazing. And we're truly happy that we could make the difference. The third is just keeping a track while by while. We now have a full, a full registry of which patient was prescribed the drug by whom, right? And of course, within that, at times, data becomes a little bit difficult to collect. Uh, but we're trying to do all of that to arrest um, just the inequitable supply of uh, of uh, remdesivir and tocilizumab, and I think we're being helped uh, a lot by automation, but a lot of it is also just being done to make sure that uh, you know hospitals get this before the rest of the public does. So there's a lot of supply to the hospitals we've tried to ensure, um, as well as with technology. So a lot is, being, is a lot is is happening in that field. I'm happy to take additional questions on that. Sure. No, I think I want to. I can possibly attest to yeah, I was saying I can actually attest to some of these because we work uh, with Cipla as well and a bunch of other companies and um, uh, certainly the control over the supply chain and trace, uh, track and trace is very, very strong. For a lot of these medicines, they are only supplied directly to the patients in the hospital. So when we get demand and I think uh, in the early phases and uh, that's where people were taking so much initiative themselves. So in the early phase, um, I would say senior managers of uh, pharmaceutical companies, including CIPLA, just told us to uh, tell the patients to give their mobile numbers and they will uh, directly con uh, connect with the patient and have it supplied in the hospital. And uh, we did it for hundreds of cases that we would just uh, uh, let the patient know that you need the medicine, you please call the company and it will be directly supplied to your hospital. Uh, thereafter came the Cipla helpline and that made life easier for everyone. But I think uh, the, uh, uh, the initial phases was everyone putting in human energy to make sure that uh, they do their best. And then thereafter came systems processes in, the, in a lot of detail. And, and as being in a part of the distribution uh, ecosystem, we can I can attest to that, that yes, while we did not uh, add, uh, get to participate in the retail side of the drugs, because that this is not a medicine for the retail uh, con consumer, but uh, we did get a lot of demand. And the pharma companies actually were very, very active in directly taking it up and fulfilling it. 
I want to add just one line, and I think that you know the fact is that many people did suffer. Uh, we were able to get uninterrupted supply. Our relationship with pharma companies has been great. But I've heard many of these stories. I think it's very important for all governments, you know, do a regional language scrolling, saying there is no shortage. Get your medicine. Get remdesivir in the hospital. Something like that is very important. Uh, otherwise, advertise the helpline that the pharma companies are having. Uh, here, the knowledge needs to be with the individual and the patient, who's the one who's really become a little susceptible to this black black market theory. So let's use all media, social media, to stop it. Right, Sangeeta. So uh, we'll take up on research and development during COVID-19 pandemic. So globally, this pandemic has uh, put, put the spotlight on research and development. So there is also an increasing concern that pandemics may become more frequent and hence the need for new and better drugs. So asking you, Mang, how are you pivoting to meet this challenge? And how can the government help to boost, boost this R&D of... Uh, new drugs in India? So it has it's a great question. I think it has two connotations. Um, so let me try and work both. One is the IP construct, right? Because very often for new pandemics, you need strong IP for collaborations to work with, with, uh, with multinational corporations. And I think that framework and that template is now existing in India, where foreign companies and MNCs can work with domestic manufacturers. But I think there is this double line that we should avoid, right? IP is IP. It needs to be protected to some extent. And I think that that trust enables and fosters collaboration. The second is, I think for a while, um, maybe more from an Indian context and more from our own country's context, we have excellent chemists. Right? We, we supply 30% or 40% of the generic uh, medicines to the US, right? I think in India, uh, we have not fostered innovation in biology as much right so the whole art of discovering a new drug is essentially a combination of chemistry and biology the art of reproducing a genetic drug is more chemistry okay so i think the whole emphasis in trying to create this whole biology universe of creating a startup ecosystem of trying to create more for innovation you see the other side of innovation which we don't realize is innovation is costly and it must be paid for the reason the U.S. attracts the maximum amount of innovation is because there's a system that pays for this innovation. And somewhere in India, we need to have this balance. I think that's government policy where a lot of, re where a lot of innovation should either be, award be given IP protection. And there has to be a mechanism where this innovation can be paid for uh, by insurers and otherwise. Right. So I think I would leave those two things. But from our perspective, there are lots of drugs that, that, are, that we are trying to repurpose for COVID. There are screens we are running. We're looking at human assays. Um, we're looking at uh, SBDD, structure-based drug design, to figure out what could hit um, the spike protein in the drug. So a lot of that work is also happening. There have been some hits, right? And there have also been, you know, we've had these hits. We've tried them in clinics. Obviously, they haven't shown the same amount of... Uh, you know, the same amount of responsiveness. So a lot of work is happening. Um, I truly believe that in the next one year, the vaccine may come, but there will also be a pharmaceutical solution uh, to treating this. I'm quite hopeful uh, this, the human enterprise will deliver something and I hope it does, right, along with the vaccine, but a lot of work is happening in terms of doing this. Okay, so I'm going to rope in Swapna here. Uh, we just want to understand, Swapna, if artificial intelligence can play a role in drug discovery. And also, how do you think telemedicine will shape up in the post-COVID era? So 
So I think artificial intelligence is already playing a very big role in drug discovery, uh, especially the the complexity of the whole process. It's uh, it's necessary that huge amounts of data are processed in minimal time, and there is a learning mechanism that the software adopts to predict. Right. So there's there's a lot that's already happening. But I also want to add that foundational to using AI is adopting automation. And I'll tell you why. Um, if you have a person entering data from one place to the other, and then that data is being run through a machine learning algorithm to predict uh, X, Y, Z, you have lost the purpose of using technology, right? So foundationally, I would first say that in the pharmaceutical industry, and this is being adopted not only by companies, pharmaceutical companies abroad who have their backend offices in India, it's also being adopted by pharmaceutical companies in India today. Now, where can automation play a role and AI as well? Definitely during the drug discovery process, but clinical trials, right? Patient onboarding, handling complaints, then in the supply chain, uh, assessing all the subcomponents that are needed to build a drug, which go into thousands sometimes, monitoring that supply chain, automating the fact that you have to put an order into the supplier, processing the invoice, ensuring reminders are sent, all this can be automated and then humans can really concentrate on uh, ensuring that the time to market from the, for the drug is accelerated. So uh, that's that's what I have to say, Nitu. Okay. Sure. You know, I'm going to bring the discussion back to uh, healthcare facilities and uh, I'm going to go to uh, Anil and really ask him that, you know, you you sort of elaborated in detail about um, how you sort of rose to the occasion in terms of um, creating infrastructure, creating facilities to battle COVID. And even Sangeeta has very nicely detailed the entire journey. And I'm sure in all of this, you would have realized that there were certain mistakes made and there were certain things you could have done differently. Do you want to take us through what you think? And I'm not talking about what is I'm talking, I'm looking at the big picture. Do you want to sort of take us through um, the learnings or the mistakes that um, um, you remember? So I think uh, I break that those down into common and you know whatever. So I think uh, you know it's been a learning journey right through for everybody. I think the government has learned, the private sector has learned, the the public hospitals have learned a lot as well. Uh, so if I look at the and you know the first was what you mentioned, which is you know how do the government and the private sector work together? I think that was a learning that we all went through together. The second aspect about uh, testing is another large area where I think uh, you know the, there was a lot of change and evolution in terms of what's the optimal model and how do you make sure that there is adequate testing and, and control on the quality of testing at the same time as well. Uh, that's the second. The third, I think in the hospitals themselves, we went through a lot of change in terms of how do we make sure first that we are protecting uh, you know, the staff and we are not becoming a source of infection ourselves. Uh, and that I think we went through a great deal of learning over in terms of how do we prepare for this new normal. And I think we were in the forefront because subsequently as the economies opened up, you know, the same learnings can be applied in, in many, many different settings. Uh, and I think, you know, that all came out of the, the way that we had to deal with, how do you deal with cafeterias? How do you deal with staff that meet each other and so on and so forth? How do you prevent, uh, you know, fundamentally we are social people and how do you prevent us from meeting each other 
when they're all coming to work in a healthcare setting. Uh, so I think that's one example. Uh, a lot about protection of our staff in terms of coverage, uh, securing them in terms of insurance and so on. These are things that we all uh, had to learn on the fly and, and move along. And then, of course, finally, on the, on the protocols and the medical treatment part as well, uh, you know, you've seen the kind of changes that have happened in the protocols as new discoveries have happened and, and as new things have been tried and have worked uh, in reducing the mortality rates or the morbidity rates and so on. So I think if you look at all that, there's been plenty of learning. I think if I see the other piece, just commenting on the technology part, I think this was a tipping point when it came to technology adoption by both patients as well as by doctors. You know, some of these things have been available for a long time. Like, uh, you know, Sangeeta ji also mentioned. So telemedicine or video consults have been available, but uh, adoption at both levels has been slow. Uh, and I think this was the tipping point that made patients far more accepting and understanding of this medium. And it uh, also uh, encouraged very, very, uh, you know, wide range of doctors from sure. uh, very senior ones as well uh, to sure. quickly take it up and, and make it a reality, you know, uh, virtually overnight. So those are just some examples. And I think, uh, like I said, it was a tipping point for the industry. Uh, and there'll be a lot more that uh, you know follows as we go along. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I We have to wrap up now. Not wrap up uh, quickly, but very soon because uh, we are just uh, 10 minutes more to go. And we have some very interesting questions from uh, our viewers. Before I take that, I want to thank you, Sangeeta. And uh, again, you know, the same question posed to you. But then I would want you to take a big picture view of the healthcare ecosystem. And in that sense, I want to put out some challenges that we saw that the hospitals, insurance companies, uh, government had to deal with. One is, of course, the whole fragmented ecosystem. You something that you said, you know, you're present in different geographies and you have to conform to different guidelines and different protocols, etc. Um, then there's also about uh, insurance having to deal with uh, hospitals, customers sort of getting confused between uh, the two cashless claims getting rejected. Uh, when we talk to insurance companies, they say that, you know, healthcare is unregulated, whereas we are regulated. So it's extremely important to control pricing. GI Council is planning to move forward to have uniform pricing structure and also standardize the healthcare costs. So just move 30,000 feet away and look at the healthcare ecosystem and sort of just quickly, if you were to wrap up and tell us uh, you know, the, the, the gaping holes and uh, how that can be sort of fixed. Your question is the subject of a whole thesis, but you want I me know, to do it. But let me let me take a shot at this. I think the first aspect we have to look at is that healthcare is about three things. It's about access. People should be able to get care. It's about availability and it's about quality. And these are three you know, points in a pyramid and we need to make sure that all of them are well structured. So people are able to make things affordable by compromising on quality. Where do you find that optimal balance? And then if you give, you know, a certain quality of care and you're unable to make it accessible, even geographically for the whole country. So first we have to remember that. Then you take universal healthcare access as a framework and here, you know, more insurance, greater hospitals, standardization, uh, capability is one aspect and an ability to reimburse in a fair manner so that the hospital is able to survive 
and to replenish itself because technology is changing every three or four years. And if you said hospitals are in the private sector and they take bank loans and they have shareholders, they need an allocable surplus to service these. So we cannot look at them as the same of a government hospital who has not invested uh, or put public money or tax money into building their infrastructure, their materials are coming from Jana Aushadi and their salaries are paid. So we need to understand, yet I want public and private to be measured on the same yardsticks as quality. So that's one whole aspect. The second aspect I really want to put uh, you know, into the consideration stack because it's very important is the aspect of prevention. Because if we simply look at trying to meet up to the disease burden, which is growing every year, and the costs of healthcare are growing faster than the GDP in every country all over the world. So we need to take a pivot and maybe use this point of time to say, how can we prevent? So this aspect of early detection, all of us know that people who had comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension, especially if they were uncontrolled, uh, were not able to fight COVID as well as the healthy people. So how do we keep our population as healthy as possible so that irrespective of which infection comes, which problem comes, aging will happen, how we can fight this better. So these are two, two very important pillars. One is the whole aspect of enabling care and universal health coverage. The second is primary care, prevention and keeping people healthy. And we have to do that in a framework of transparency, of mutual win-win. It is not, you cannot say that, you know, let the customer pay because ultimately they will not be happy. You cannot say the hospitals uh, have to come at free or discount because they won't be able to add beds or add technology. So we need a framework of win-win. We need a framework of transparency, ethics, standards, and then you put the technology layer because technology can enhance operations, bring care within the reach of people uh, and enable faster, quicker, and most importantly, in a country where we have a tremendous shortage of doctors and nurses. If you use AI right, I mean, our cardiac risk model, which I'm very, very proud of, will enable a general practitioner to do about 80% level of diagnosis as an advanced cardiologist. So using this technology and AI models to enable the whole ecosystem to deliver a better quality of care. And then finally, put the most of it into people's hand so that healthcare becomes everyone's responsibility. Sure. And we uh, can do it. And I hope India shows the way. Sure. I'm afraid we'll have to wrap up very soon now. But before we do, I'm going to take some questions from the viewers. Um, uh, you know, to start with, thanks a lot for taking our questions and sort of answering all of them in such great detail and with such passion, I must say. But uh, coming to our viewers' question, uh, Arvind Jain is asking, do you think online and telemedicine habit will revert once vaccine is launched? I think it's a very interesting question. Um, and I'm sure you guys must be having a view already on this and must be deliberating on this. So, um, uh, you know, uh, feel free to sort of answer. So, no, I think when the, when the quantum of change that's happened, I think uh, this will be the new norm. And that's what we are seeing, that even as the unlock has started and OPD footfalls in the hospitals are increasing, our video consults are not uh, reducing either, and they're also climbing. Uh, so I think we've established a new normal. That's because patient acceptance and doctor acceptance have both happened virtually overnight. And I think that's that's going to be the new norm. Okay. And I think that we will learn how to interposition where the physical touch is important 
and where telemedicine is appropriate. And these protocols will evolve, follow up post-operative care, patients from a distance, medication compliance, all these fall clearly in telemedicine. Emergency access to a higher specialist, multi-speciality tumor boards, all these are, you know, telemedicine. But uh, pre-surgical evaluations, routine uh, checkups by your general practitioner, where you need to do an examination. So, you know, the, the parameters of appropriateness are available and patients and doctors will comply in this new system and we'll all be the better for it. And I think uh, we are at a, a very important phase in, uh, and, and it's just, we had, we, had, we had just gotten started with telemedicine for this country. Like, yes. if, as, as they said, 2.5 million for China, 50,000 for India. It's uh, the, the it's too early for it to be anywhere close to saturation. Or, but I think the important thing that will happen is that the doctor-patient relationship will move to a more life cycle relationship. The patient can connect with the doctor even when the patient goes back and is at home. The doctor-patient interaction will move into more a disease management kind of an interaction where the doctor will decide whether a physical uh, visit is required or not. Because otherwise, for a lot of things, the, the care can still be provided and will be provided um, in, in a regular manner. Data will keep coming in through connected devices. Uh, interactions will keep happening. And there, thereafter, that, that will be a better experience for everybody, uh, especially the patient. Okay, there is another question from uh, Mr. Karthik R. So uh, I would like Swapna to add to this. Uh, this is a related question. Uh, though there have been improvements in telemedicine, how can we take it to rural India where someone with no internet or smartphone can access it? No internet or, so no internet like or smartphone. Was that the question? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I have an answer. Yes, uh, I can read it out again. Yes, Sanjita 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 go ahead. Okay, no, no, Sanjita Ji, please go ahead. Okay, thank you. But, uh, you know, there is a government infrastructure and we've been working on it for the last five to seven years, which is the common service centers. There are 600,000 CSCs and all CSCs are enabled with telemedicine. So, uh, I mean, over a period of time, every Indian will have a smartphone, but in the interim, they can go to their village CSC and access telemedicine. So it is absolutely possible and we should acknowledge the Ministry of IT uh, Niti Ayok, and sorry on the research points, I think ICMR deserves a lot of kudos. They've done some tremendous things in this difficult time. Yes, and they're really adopting technology, Sangeeta yes, Ji. Yes. ICMR, they're doing fantastic work. And on the telemedicine front, right, I think as, as Prashant was saying, it is just the beginning. Uh, there's so much that can be communicated between a patient and a doctor. If I, if I take a photograph of a report, for example, Extraction of data can be automated, filled into the database. The doctor, uh, that, that data is taken, assessed through multiple systems. AI is used. And as Sangeeta Ji was saying, uh, a first level of suggestion from the doctor yes. to the patient can be obtained within a matter of minutes. That's fraction of a second. Absolutely. So, and then you'll imagine an AI model working on COVID diagnosis in yes. uh, CT and X-ray in the yes. middle of the night, yes. which is what is happening today. So things yes. like that are happening right now. And yes. this is what the world can be proud of. So, Umang, you want to say something? We'll very quickly hear you yeah. before we wrap. Let, 
let me give an alternate view to this, right? I, I have seen, frankly, because we deliver medicines pretty much to tier four towns, right? So there is medicines that go to tier three, to metros and to tier four cities. I just want to leave, you know, I just want to leave a thought. The sophistication of how some of these tier four towns are taking up this, right? In terms of trying to map out using technology and smartphones in trying to map out the drug supply in their territories is far more than the metros to do. Right? So we should not be surprised and how quickly this wave could come. And you know, I don't think we can argue at any point that there is no um, that there is no you know Wi-Fi or internet in these places. Actually, a lot of them are beginning to have it. So I see more sophistication in the tier four cities and the tier three cities from a distribution and technology perspective than I see in our metros. I right? agree. So I think, yeah, so I, I just think we should be, you know, we should be where the, the trend will it actually be, be faster there than it will be in the metros. Super. So I think that's all we are out of time. We have one minute, uh, you know, one minute extra taking. Um, so it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, thank you all panelists for such a nice discussion. Uh, what I gather is we're at the cusp of a huge digital transformation, and uh, I look forward to the journey from here on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank this was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.